Martin Lloyd-Jones made this statement. He says, love does not look at itself. It is absorbed in the object. That's so true. And that's the kind of love that God calls us to give him. A love that is absorbed in him. It's clear in Scripture that we are to love God, and that is without any question. But how are we to do this? Is there any kind of visual display that we can show Him? Does the Bible tell us how God wants us to be loved? And the answer is yes. But before we can answer those questions, we first have to say that loving God requires knowing Him. And that knowledge begins with His Word. To know Him is to love Him. If you do not know Him, you do not love Him. So I want to begin this morning by asking a simple question, and that is this. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Have you received Him? Have you confessed Him as Lord, have you believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Have you called upon him? And if all that is true, then there are five ways that you can manifest your love for God. And I want to begin to talk about these this morning. To love God is to worship and praise him. I hope and pray that this morning that that's what you were doing that you are worshiping and praising God through the reading of Scripture, through the giving of your offering, through the singing of the songs, and now through the listening of the preaching of God's Word. We express our love to Him by worshiping. We are a worshiping people. And you know, Jesus reaffirmed this in Luke 4, at verse 6, when he was in the wilderness, 40 days and 40 nights, he was tempted by the devil. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this dominion and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. See, what Satan was trying to do was get Jesus to not trust God. In fact, the very things that he was promising Jesus, God had already given him. But Jesus responds by reaffirming Scripture. He quotes from Deuteronomy 6 and verse 13, which reads, you shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship Him and swear by His name. See, we are to only fear the Lord. We're only to fear Yahweh. We're only to fear God. We're not to worship any other creature. We're not to worship the creation as many do in Romans 1. We're only to swear by His name and nobody else. 
Now, Deuteronomy was written by Moses, so we can say with certainty that Moses was calling the Israelites to this kind of love. He was calling them to worship and praise the Creator. He should be the only person that receives worship, the only one who receives praise. And this should be an all-consuming effort on our part. In fact, everything that I have to say to you this morning, nothing can happen apart from His Spirit. You cannot worship Him. You cannot praise Him. You can't do anything apart from the filling of the Holy Spirit. So it's extremely essential that you understand what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Over in Ephesians 5.18, where we find that command... It says, and be not drunk with wine in which is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. That command right there is telling us that in the context for which we find it, that that is the natural and the right response that believers have to God. That we are filled with His Spirit. Now, this is a filling that you can't do. It's in the passive voice. The passive voice tells us that something else is acting on the subject. And something else is acting on you, and the person that's acting on you is the Spirit of God. And it's also a command. You're commanded to be being kept filled with the Spirit. And again, you can't do this. The Spirit of God has to do this. So what you have to do is die to self. You have to deny yourself. Take up your cross, as Luke 9.23 says, and follow Christ. You have to walk by the means of the Spirit. And when you walk by the means of the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. In fact, when you walk by the means of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is produced in you. And it's not just one of those nine fruits that are mentioned there. It's one fruit, nine different attitudes. So when we look at this understanding of worship... And we look at this understanding of praise. I want you to understand that in the Hebrew, to worship and to praise meant to serve. It meant to surrender everything about yourself to the one that you're serving. So that tells me that preparation is definitely helpful and definitely needed. And I don't know what your Sunday morning is like and what kind of preparation that you make. Mine is pretty much the same each week. I get up early and go over the message, pray over the message, and sometimes I find myself right back in the study doing things with the message again before I get here. But it's all about Him. It's not about me, it's not about you, but it's all about Christ. And it cannot be anything less. As John Gill says, that we are to serve him through fear, not through slavish fear, a fear of hell and damnation, but through filial fear, a reverential affection for that God that had brought them out of a state of bondage into great and glorious liberty, out of Egypt into Canaan's land, out of a place of misery into a land of plenty, and therefore should fear the Lord and His goodness, and from such a fear of Him serve Him in every part of worship, public and private and joined. 
So as we gather together this morning and we've gathered to worship and praise our God, this is also something that should be going on in your private life. And it should be going on all the time. You know, the Bible teaches that this is the theme that we find in the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms was the Jewish hymn book of the people, the Hebrew people. And when you read the Psalms, they were accompanied with music, with string instruments, with other kinds of instruments. And you would find that in the inscription in the first part of the verse, which in the Hebrew Bible is actually verse 1. And so they would worship God and take these psalms and sing them. In fact, that's where I learned years ago how to write a song, was reading the psalms, because I wanted to write a song, or any songs for that matter, that you didn't have to hear the music to know how it went. Because you know how it is, sometimes you have to hear the music to know how the, the words are lining up and how they rhyme and so forth, and... Uh, but I wanted it to be that, you know, if you just read this, you had no music, you understood exactly what was being said, like you're reading the Psalms, and, and you can offer up worship and praise in that manner. But listen to some of the Psalms that talk about the priority of worshiping and praising God. You had Psalm 5 and verse 7. David said, As for me, in the abundance of your loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will worship and fear of you. I will worship. That was a dedicated act on his part. Psalm 22 verse 27 says, All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to Yahweh, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. Psalm 29 verse 2 says, Ascribe to Yahweh the glory of his name. Worship Yahweh in the splendor of of his holiness. And by the way, I'm reading this from the Legacy Standard Bible. They have taken the New American Standard, done a few revisions. And in the Old Testament, when you read the name of God, which is Yahweh, they actually translate it out as Yahweh. So, like Psalm 66 4, this one doesn't have it in it, but it does tell us that all the earth will worship you and will sing praises to you. They will sing praises to your name. Psalm 86.9, All the nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Yahweh, and they shall glorify your name. Psalm 95, verse 6, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before Yahweh, our Maker. All these verses are talking about worshiping the one true God. Like Psalm 99 and verse 5, Exalt Yahweh our God and worship at the footstool of His feet. Holy is He. Verse 9 of Psalm 99, Exalt Yahweh our God and worship at His holy mountain, for holy is Yahweh our God. And two more, Psalm 132, 7, Let us come into His dwelling place. Let us worship at the footstool of His feet. In Psalm 138.2, I will worship toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and for your truth, for you have magnified your word according to all your name. Now, if that's the theme of the hymn book of the Old Testament, shouldn't it be the theme of your life? That everything that you do is 
worship and praise to the one and true God and that you express it in such a way so to love Him is to worship Him and praise Him. See, this is really a way of life. Everything about us is to be worship and praise to Him. Everything about this should affect our lives. John 4.24, when Jesus is speaking at the woman of Samaria at the well, He tells her that God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the word that He uses for worship is the Greek word proskuneo, which occurs about 60 times in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the word is used in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So it would be the same word, proskuneo. And it means to do reverence or to bow down. And we find that like in Genesis 18 when the three visitors came to Abraham. And he lifted his eyes and he looked and behold, three men were standing nearby. And he saw and he ran from the tent door to meet them. And it says he bowed down to the earth. This was out of reverence and respect and homage. And of course, as he talks to the Lord, the three that are there, two of them were angels, as we know in Genesis 19. But as he talks to the Lord there, he gives him worship. He's even careful with how he phrases his words, how he speaks to him. In the New Testament, the word also meant to do reverence and to do homage. And it spoke of prostration to where you're bowing down before him. Matthew 8, 2, there was a leper who came to Jesus. And it says he came bowing down before him and saying, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And, of course, the Lord said, I am willing. And he stretched out his hand and he healed him of his leprosy. Immediate, total Full healing. And leprosy would cause members to fall off. And here, the Lord Jesus Christ healed him completely of the leprosy. You know, it's a miracle that I believe many miss. Just like in the garden when the guards came to take Jesus away and Peter pulls out his sword and he goes for the head of one of the high priests the servant of the high priest, and he turns out and he gets his ear, and he cuts his ear completely off. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, put your sword back into its sheath. He who lives by the sword will die by the sword. And then he turns to Malcolm and he touches his ear and he gives him a new ear. You know, that goes by so quickly in the passage that you miss it if you're not careful. But these two verses talk about and give us the identity who the Lord Jesus Christ is just by that very act and therefore demands from us a certain type of response. And what is that response? It's worship and it is praise. And it's giving adoration to Him. So to love God is to worship and praise God. Every time you express worship and praise to Him, you're expressing your love to Him. And God wants us to do that. And God wants us to bow down before Him in humility. Our second way that we express our love to God is by putting Him first. To love God is to put Him first. 
This is what I refer to as chief or primary love. And I'm basically getting that from Revelation 2.4. If you'd like to turn there, you can see that. But let me just ask you a few questions. Is God your chief love? Now, I know it's easy to answer that question this morning because you're sitting in here, but was it true that earlier this morning before you got here, or was it true yesterday or the day before or this week? And, and you say, well, I always love him. I'm, I'm a Christian. But do you always put him first? And if we're honest about it, we'd have to admit, no, we don't. We don't always put him first. Sometimes we put ourselves first. Sometimes... We put these things first. In fact, I find more people <coughs> more people staring at, at their phone <coughs> than I find them doing anything else. When I am going through the, park, uh, the parking lot at a store, I'm very careful as I ride through where the doors are because... Nine out of ten people crossing in front of you do not look at you. You ever notice that? They look at their phone more than anything. Or they're looking straight ahead, but they never look from left to right to see if anything's coming. Now, I'm a parent, and I always look left to right, whether I have my kids with me or not. And I always know where they are. And they're always right here with me. And when they were a lot younger... I always said, grab the buggy. Hold on to the buggy as we walk across the road. In fact, the other day I was watching this one lady come out of the store. And trailing behind her must have been her three- or four-year-old daughter. And she was pretty far behind. And I was just thinking to myself, and I looked at my wife, and I said, she should never let her little girl walk that far away from her. That's how people kidnap people. That's how people get hurt very, very easily. But I find it more and more, and I find it very interesting. And, and so, so I ask that question, is God chief to you? Is, is loving him the chief love that you have? Do you love him more than the things of the world? We're told in 1 John chapter 2 to do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. So we're told not to love the things of this world because those things that comprise our attention is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Do you love him more than the things of the world? Do you love him more than your car? Do you love him more than your house? Do you love him more than your phone, your computer, or anything else that you possess? You say, well, yes. That's the easy answer. Well, let me ask you this question then. Do you love him more than those who are dear to you? Do you love him more than your family? Do you love him more than your children? Over in Genesis chapter 22, there is a, an account of Abraham and Isaac. 
Abraham is told to go up to Mount Moriah and to offer up his only son as a sacrifice. And he did. He did exactly that. In fact, an angel of the Lord called out from heaven and stopped him from plunging that knife into his son and said to him, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And if you go back to the first verse of Genesis 22, it was a test. It was a test to reveal who Abraham loved the most. Did he love his son and his one and only son more than God? Or did he love God the most? Well, he passed the test, and so it was revealed that he loved God more than he loved his son, and he was willing to take his son's life to demonstrate that. In fact, we're told in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, that he believed that if he did take the life of his son, that God would resurrect him because he was the son of promise. Do you love God like that? Well, before you say yes, even though you probably already said yes, I want you to keep in mind what Jesus had to say to the believers at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 4. In Revelation chapter 2, we're told about this church, one of the seven churches in Asia Minor, and we're told some pretty good things about this church. Verse 2, the deeds that they had was toil and perseverance. They could not tolerate evil men. They put to test those who call themselves apostles and are not, and they found them to be false. They have persevered. They've endured for His name's sake. They have not grown weary. But the most haunting words, and I would say the most haunting to a believer, are these words. The most haunting words are found in Matthew 7, where Jesus says to unbelievers, Depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. To me, that's the most haunting words of all Scripture. But maybe some of the most haunting words for a believer are found in verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. The Lord Jesus Christ having anything against His church? Yeah. They deserted Him. And you say, how could they do that? I mean, look at all the things that they were doing. That just tells me right there, you can do that and still leave your first love. Jesus tells them what to do. In verse 5, Therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. So 40 years after their conversion, 
Their love had cooled down. You know, we see this in the church today too. When we see a person come to Christ and they're all excited and every time the preacher preaches, what do they say? Amen! Praise the Lord! And they just shout it out from the seat where they're sitting. And that goes on for several months till it begins to die down. And it's not said as much till finally it's not said at all. Your Christianity like that? You start out with this excitement, but you don't have it now? Why? Did you forsake your first love? What did I say earlier when I started? Ephesians 5.18 Be not drunk with wine in which is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. It is your responsibility to die to self so that you can be filled with the Spirit of God. You've got to get rid of you. You've got to get self out of the picture, self out of the way, so that you can yield to the Spirit of God. So that He can fill you. So that He can control you. You want an easier way to say this? Colossians 3.16 says, Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And the, the results of letting the Word of Christ control you are the same as Ephesians 5 when it talks about being filled with the Spirit. Because if you look at the effects of that, they're both the same. Husbands will love their wives like Christ loves the church. Wives will submit to their husbands. Fathers will not exasperate their children. Children will be obedient to their parents. All of those are the results. The visual effects of being filled with the Spirit. And it's in both of those chapters. Though one is talking about being filled with the Spirit, the other one is talking about being controlled by the Word. So what's it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It means to be obedient to the Word of God. It means to be controlled by the Scriptures. And I'll tell you what, that's not going to happen if you're not saturating your mind with Scripture. You have to saturate your mind every day with Scripture to deal with the flesh. The flesh is too powerful for you to deal with it on your own. You need to yield to the Spirit of God. That's the only way you're going to kill sin in your life. Romans 8, 13 talks about putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. You can't do it apart from the Holy Spirit. So these believers had left their first love, their chief love, their primary love. That's the word protos. Protos translated first. It refers to being before anything else. That's how it's used in Matthew 19.30. It's also translated foremost. In Mark 12.29, referring to the most important. And you know what the most important was in that passage in Mark 12? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The foremost of our life is to love God supremely. This has to be done with your entire being. 
The parallel passage is found in Matthew twenty two thirty seven, and it says the same thing. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. It's the other passages that add strength. But this is a quotation of Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5, which says, You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. God wants you to love Him with your whole being in every possible way. He also wants you to love Him exclusively above all other things and above all beings. He wants you to love Him exclusively over loving your family. Lukewarm, half-hearted, apathetic fondness for God won't do. He wants our total devotion. It was said about David in Acts 13.22 that David was a man after God's own heart. And it was he who would do all my will, God says. The Hebrew word that Moses uses for love in Deuteronomy 6.5, it refers primarily to an act of mind and will. Because see, when I started out this study, and I've been wrestling all week, Lord, where do you want me to go? We just finished a book, and I'm not sure where you want us to go yet, and kind of have some ideas, but... One of the things that's just been hanging on my mind is this subject right here. And I said, well, I guess that's where I'm going. Because is love always expressed by emotion? That's the question I was asking when I came to the Scripture. Because there are days when you don't have that emotion. Same for your spouse. There are days when you don't have that Emotion for your spouse or for your children. So it's got to be more than an emotion. It's got to be much more than an emotion because emotions are up and down. And you can't trust them. That very moment when you feel good about something and you find out later that that's something you felt good about, about was sin. But in Deuteronomy 6.5, as I said, the Hebrew word that's used there, it primarily refers to an act of mind, an act of the will. And it certainly may well include strong emotion. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you wouldn't have any emotion. But on those days when you struggle with emotion, you should have an act of mind and an act of the will pointing in that direction. This is a distinguishing characteristic. The dedication and the commitment of choice. This is the love that recognizes and chooses to follow that which is righteous, that which is noble, that which is true, regardless of what one's feelings is in a matter. You're doing this regardless of how you feel at the moment. You don't give in to that feeling. In fact, you reject it altogether. And that's what you have to do with stray, straying thoughts. You have to bring them under control. You don't act on them. You don't dwell on them. You don't think about them. You dismiss them the moment they come. And it's wonderful if you can take Scripture and replace it. 
Some people do that when they have trouble with certain words. And they will substitute those certain words for other words that don't sound as bad. I'm okay with that. Unless you're taking something good and making it bad. But this word that's used in the Hebrew, it's the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek word agapao that we find in the New Testament. That is the verb of intelligent, purposeful, and committed love that is an act of the will. So whether you feel like it, you give yourself as an act of your will to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. When we talk about loving God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, it's talking about a comprehensive kind of love. You're loving God with every part of your being. The heart referred to the core of your personal being. We hear like in Proverbs 4.23, to guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. And since everything flows out of your heart, you want to guard what you put in. You want to guard what you're meditating on, what you're thinking about all the time. The soul would probably be closest to what we would call emotion. And that's even the word that Jesus used when he cried in the Garden of Gethsemane the night that he was arrested. Matthew 26, 38, he said, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. The mind is used here in the sense of intellectual, willful, vigor, determination, where you're carrying both the meaning of mental endeavor, and mental strength. You know, we find a place over in Romans 7 that just really kind of hits on this. Let me have you to turn to Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7, we hear the very familiar statements that Paul makes beginning at verse 18. Actually, let's just back up some more. He says in verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. So he's telling you where the struggle is. It's in your flesh. Verse 19, for the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle... That evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? 
Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God, but on the other hand, with my flesh, the law of sin. Now, what can we deduce from that? Don't give in to the flesh. Don't listen to the flesh. Those moments when you don't have the emotion, those moments when you don't feel like doing any of the things of God, do it with your mind. Don't worry about the flesh. He says there, With my mind I am serving the law of God. And beloved, when you have stray thoughts come across your mind that are reprehensible, that are ungodly, nothing praiseworthy about them, you kill those thoughts immediately. And with your mind, you serve God. As I said, it's with the mind we're talking about this willful determination. I am determined not to give in to those thoughts. I am determined not to listen to my emotion. I am determined to get my emotions in line with my mind, my intellect, as I give myself to God in worship. So, we're saying then, genuine love for the Lord is intelligent. There is feeling. It's willing and serving. It involves thought and sensitivity and intent. And even action where that is possible and appropriate. In the words of the psalmist, Psalm seventy-three twenty-five, Whom have I in heaven but you. And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. What a wonderful expression of what our hearts are to be. And your heart can be that. Absolutely. That was quoted by the psalmist, and that's what he expressed. I find it very interesting that David was called a man after God's own heart, and unfortunately, we tend to remember his sins. But you know, God doesn't. Aren't you thankful for that? They're not used against him. So not only is our love to God expressed by worship and praise or it to be comprehensive, but... To love God is to desire Him, to yearn for His righteousness, His Word, and His grace. It's like thirsting for water. Now, you all know what that feels like. You thirst for something to drink. The psalmist even uses the deer as an example. In Psalm 42, verse 1, he says, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you. Oh God, and the idea of panning for something is longing for it. It's a very strong desire. In the New Testament, it's the Greek word epithumia. Epithumia is a word that speaks of strong desire. And the context in the passage determines its meaning because it's used in both a good way as well as in an evil way. And we know it very well in an evil way when we're drawn after lust. 
And we give in to temptation. The, the, the desire is very strong. Well, that very desire that is strong toward evil is to be just as strong and even more toward the right things, toward the things of God, toward God Himself. We are to have that kind of desire. David said in Psalm 119, verse 131, I opened my mouth wide and panted, for I longed for your commandments. And here is this longing that was consuming him that he had for the word of God. And yet in Psalm 42, that very longing and that very panting that he had was for God himself. How do you satisfy that longing for God? By His Word. That's where you satisfy it. Is by God's Word. Psalm 84 verse 2 says, My soul has longed and even fainted for the courts of Yahweh. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. And here the psalmist was saying, that he wanted to be so much in the courts of God that he was nearly fainting just to be there. So to have this kind of desire and to yearn for his righteousness and his word and his grace, it is like thirsting for water. It's also like sitting at the feet of Jesus listening to him. You remember Mary in Luke 10? Luke 10, 39 says... She had a sister, Martha had a sister named Mary, who was also seated at the feet of the Lord, listening to His Word. And she was just taking it all in. And, and what was Martha doing? Well, you read in 40 to 42, Martha's distracted. She's distracted with all the preparations. She's got people in her house. She's got people there visiting her. Make sure the house is clean. Make sure that we have all the refreshments. Make sure we have what everyone needs. She's all busy taking care of everybody else instead of what... Mary was doing was taking care of her soul. So she even asked the Lord to get Mary to help her. She said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the preparations alone? Tell her to help me. I love the Lord's response. Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. But only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which should not be taken away from her. The good part is listening at the feet of Jesus. The good part is listening to His Word. Listen, you forsake everything else in your life so you can have time in the Word. I know you've got to work out those details with your job or taking care of your kids, taking care of your family. But do what you've got to do so that you have time with God and His Word. If that means getting up earlier, do it. If it means staying up later, do it. Going to bed earlier, do it. Whatever you need to do to make sure that you are sitting at the feet of God's Word, listening to His Word, that is the greatest thing. Over having your house cleaned up or having your house prepared for guests, more important than that, in fact, to have this kind of desire and loving God in this way is more desirable than all the riches in the world. 
Psalm 19 and verse 10 says, They are more desirable than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. It's more valuable than all the riches of the world. More valuable than the highest number that we've seen lately in the billions on the lottery. You should desire God more than all these things. All those things will perish. All those things are temporal. One writer makes this statement. He says, suppose a man is separated from his sweetheart and receives a letter from her. In fact, I think Harrison can relate to this story after having been deployed. His first action will be to eagerly open the letter and pour over its contents. His love for his beloved will naturally cause him to love her correspondence with him. The same is true with our love for God's word because we love the author. We love his message to us. We read it avidly and often. We hold it close and we hide its words in our hearts. So compare your love for God and His Word to the love that you have for your spouse or your children. You have a strong bond, a strong love. And that love should be for God. Worshiping, praising the Lord, putting Him first, desiring Him and His righteousness and His Word and His grace... Next, we would say to love God is to obey Him. And that's probably the first place that many of us start. We naturally wish to please those we love, especially God. And our obedience will actually prove our love. You know, W.E. Vine, in his expository dictionary, says that the Greek word for faith is the Greek word pistis. And he says in that definition that he gives that obedience is the only thing that we have to prove that we really believe God. Isn't that what 1 John says over and over? Jesus said it in John 14, 21 and following. Listen to what he says. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. That's crystal clear, isn't it? And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our dwelling with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. I mean, listen to what he's saying right there. If if you are one who says that you love God, do you obey His Word? Do you keep His Word? Because if you do love Him, you will keep His Word. But if you don't love Him, you will not keep His Word. You will not obey Him. See, obedience actually reveals our true desires. 
The psalmist said in Psalm 40 and verse 8, I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my inner being. His very delight, his very desire was God's will. That's what mattered to him. And even Jesus says in John 15, 10, that obedience is tantamount to abiding in his love. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Probably one of the purest examples in the Bible of how to love God comes from an unnamed woman who anointed the feet of Jesus with perfume. You remember that? It's found in Luke 7, beginning at verse 36. Let me read this to you. It says, Now one of the Pharisees was asking him to eat with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, crying, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And she kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, saying, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Who out of the two is going to be moved by that act of forgiveness? The one who's been forgiven much, right? She was so grateful for God's forgiveness of her many sins that she poured out her love and extravagant worship and absolute devotion. She was appreciating the worth of her Savior. And with humble gratitude and sacrifice and servitude, she loved and worshipped Jesus with her tears and her hair and her kisses and her priceless bottle of perfume. She had loved God with all that she was and all that she had. That's the kind of love we're to have. How are we to love God? I'll give you one more. To love God is to hate sin. Charles Spurgeon said, you and your sins must separate or you and your God will never come together. No one sin may keep you. They must all be given up. They must be brought out like Canaanite kings from the cave and be hanged up in the sun. See, if you love God... You love what he loves and you hate what he hates. And what does he hate? He hates sin, doesn't he? 
See, I would just tell you this morning, I love God more than I love you. You say, why would you say that like that? Because most preachers will stand here and never say a word about your sin. I'm not going to do that to you. God tells me to preach against it, so I preach against it. In my life, first and foremost, and in your life. Jonathan Edwards says, the more a Christian hates sin, the more he desires to hate it. Do you hate your sin? Psalm 97.10 says, Hate evil, you who love Yahweh, who keeps the souls of His holy ones. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Do you hate evil? Proverbs 8.13, The fear of Yahweh is to hate evil, pride, and arrogance, and the evil way, and the mouth of perverted words I hate. You're to hate all evil. In fact, Romans 12.9 says you are to abhor it. But you're to love without hypocrisy. You're to cling to what is good. J.C. Ryle says, But it is the excellence of a holy man that he is not at peace with indwelling sin as others are, He hates it, mourns over it, and longs to be free from its company. Eric Raymond asks, Do you hate sin? Do you hate what sin is doing? Every tear, every ounce of pain comes from sin. It fuels every hearse. Every grieving widow wails because of its might. Sin provokes every well of hurt. Every bit of shame is sourced in sin. Every regret... And burn mark upon the soul is the handiwork of sin. Every biting word is loaded with the sting of sin. Every prideful thought is concocted upon the conveyor belt of sin. Every bit of injustice is deputized by general sin. Every betrayed heart aches because sin has made its presence known. Every bit of corruption is a footprint of sin. Every bit of neglect demonstrates sin's attention. It's all sin. Sin is the greatest evil on this planet. Will you not hate it? And not only do you hate sin as a child of God, but if you love God, you'll put it to death. You won't entertain it. Colossians 3.5 says, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire and greed, which is idolatry. In the King James, that verse says, Mortify your deeds which are upon the earth. Mortify means to put to death. Romans 6.13 says, Do not go on presenting your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Is that how you feel? But as I said earlier, you can't do anything like this apart from the Spirit of God. Romans 8.13 If by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. 
It's by the Spirit that you do this. It's by the Spirit that you express your love to God. See, if you love God, you will flee from sin. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee sexual immorality. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee from youthful lust. And then pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So loving God, it requires knowing Him. To love God is to worship and praise Him. To love God is to put Him first. To love God is to desire Him, to yearn for His righteousness, His word, and His grace. To love God is to obey Him. To love God is to hate sin. Let me close with these words from Thomas Watson. He says, He who loves God desires His presence. Lovers cannot be long asunder. They soon have their fainting fits for lack of a sight of the object of their love. A soul deeply in love with God desires enjoyment of Him. David was ready to faint away when he had not a sight of God. He said, My soul faints for God. He who loves God is not much in love with anything else. His love is very cool to worldly things. The love of the world eats out of the heart of piety. It chokes holy affections. As earth puts out the fire, he who loves God uses the world but chooses God. The world engages him, but God delights and satisfies him. And he says as David, God is my exceeding joy. He further says, He who loves God cannot live without Him. Things we love we cannot be without. A man can do without music or flowers, but not food. Just so, a soul deeply in love with God looks upon himself as undone without Him. And he who loves God will be at any pains to get Him. What pains the merchant takes, what hazard he runs to have a rich return... Jacob loved Rachel and he couldn't endure the heat by day and the frost by night that he might enjoy her. A soul that loves God will take any pains for the fruition of him. Psalm 63.8, my soul follows hard after you. And then last, he who loves God prefers him before a state. He says, for whom... I have suffered the loss of all things, Philippians 3.8. Who that love a rich jewel would not part with a flower for it. Does this describe you? Does this describe me? Same question I've had to ask. God calls for nothing less. Do you love Him with all your heart? and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength? If you've never been saved, the answer would be no. And then I would call you to swallow your pride, and humble yourself before Him, and repent of your sin, and graciously receive His wonderful gift. The Bible says in John 1, 12 and 13, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, 
even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. My prayer is that you love God with all your heart and you make it known. And you're not ashamed to talk about Him in front of any Bible, in front of anybody. I mean, even in those times that we just had, like Thanksgiving, when you're with all your family and people in your family know you're the, quote, religious one, so they call on you to pray. You say, well, I'm at a dilemma now. They've called on me to pray, and about 80% of the people in this room are lost. How do I pray? I will only answer it this way. You pray caring more about what God thinks than what other people think. That's how you pray. Because if they want just someone to bless food, call somebody else. But if they want someone to intercede on behalf of your soul, right? Well, again, I hope that you love God in this way because there's no other way to love Him. We have so much to thank Him for. We have so much to love Him for. Father, we thank You We thank you for that immense love that you have shown to us. The love that you've shown to us in Christ, sending Christ to die on our behalf so that upon believing we could have eternal life. Father, I pray for each and every person in this room that each and every person in here truly knows you, is truly saved. And if not, that you would save them right now you would bring them to yourself and make them a new creature in Christ. We pray all this.